we're all advocates. We're the backbone. We're the backbone of the nation. Show the rest of the world who aren't farmers what it is. What's it, what's it like on a farm? You know, what we do every day. We're feeding the world. It creates a healthy community. So, you know, eat local, buy local, support your local farmers. Welcome back to another episode of The Advocates. In today's episode, Daniel and Wade are joined by Kate Bowen from Putney, Vermont. Kate and her family own and operate Meadowdale Farm. Since they began farming in 1999, they have been committed to raising the healthiest, happiest animals for the local community. Meadowdale Farm believes in being good stewards of the land and continuing to preserve Vermont's working landscape. Kate, how's things today? Great. Awesome. Dan, yourself? Doing well. Excited to have Kate on the show. You know, Dan, I, I never thought we'd find ourselves in Vermont, but here we are. Um, <laughs> we're, we're in yeah. southeast Vermont today. Um, Kate, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do there at the farm. Sure. So I'm Kate Bowen. Thanks for having me on. Um, so my family and I, we run a diversified um, small family farm. It's pretty traditional um, in the hills of Vermont. We're in southern Vermont, so we're just a couple hours north of Boston and a few hours south of Montreal. Dan, you know where that's at? As we said, uh, no. <laughs> the only the only town that I know that's partially in your area is Mayberry from Andy Griffith, and uh, that's about it. So I, I couldn't tell you. Um, I, I'm sure things are different different up there. Uh, before we dive into your farm exactly, uh, can you share with our listeners kind of what agriculture in Vermont looks like? Sure. Um, so in Vermont, um, you know, largely people think about some of our major crops. Um, we have a lot of dairy, uh, maple syrup, forest products, um, and those generally make up our traditional working landscape. And then there's a lot of uh, diversified farming as well and products made from those. So a lot of small cheese makers, um, a lot of alcoholic cider makers, um, a lot of microgreens and small sort of produce operations, a lot of orchards. Um, so it really runs the gamut. Uh, our climate here is fairly uh, harsh. It's a little bit of everything. Uh, we have extremely cold winters, a lot of wind at times, a lot of heavy rains in the early spring, and then it gets very hot and humid. Um, and our growing season is quite short, so um, we're pretty busy during the, you know, late spring, summertime, and fall, getting in as much hay and things like that that we need for the winter time. Um, but it's a very diversified, so we can, you know, grow things like peaches and tomatoes. A lot of people are using high tunnels and greenhouses to kind of extend the season. Um, and then we can also grow a lot of, you know, really cool weather things and some of our animal breeds um, also, you know, lend themselves to being hardy. So that's pretty interesting. Y'all, y'all seem to have quite the, like you said, diversified farm. Uh, tell us about kind of your background. Uh, where, where'd you grow up? So I grew up here in Putney, um, which is a small town in southern Vermont. It's a nose stoplights um there's a small intersection and a general store and gas station but it's a pretty quiet town um and yeah grew up here uh i'm a quote-unquote first generation farmer because my family is a couple generations removed from the farm um, but i was always really interested in agriculture i always gravitated towards that um some kids i babysat for did 4-h so i was always really into 
clipping cows with them when we had a chance or visiting their family dairy farm. And then um, when I went to high school in our town, we had a, I was a day student, but it's a boarding school that has a working farm on it and you're required to do farm chores. So every kid who graduates just about, unless he had some big fear of cows or something, but basically everybody has to learn um, how to split wood, how to milk cows, work in the garden, take care of um, pigs and sheep and do a little bit of animal husbandry basics. Um, and, you know, some kids take it much farther than other ones. Some people just do the bare minimum, but it was exposure to hands-on uh, milk cows and that, you know, kind of, I don't know, encourage that a little bit. Uh, I wish I had explored it even more and paid more attention if I had known that I was going to pursue this as an adult. Um, but once I went away to school and left school because it was just too expensive, I was going to college down in Boston and uh, came back home, met, met a guy, got engaged, we got some chickens, and uh, quickly started <laughs> selling eggs. And then, uh, you know, chickens are the gateway animal. And before you knew it, I was like eight and a half months pregnant, slaughtering chickens. And uh, that was kind of, you know, we got the bug and we loved it. And uh, we just kind of started to grow the animal side of our farm at that point. So before that, uh, my husband had on his own been running a sawmill and a logging business. Um, and so it was a natural fit to add animals into that. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think gravitated yourself to agriculture? I think I'm a really traditional person. I mean, I never thought about that because I was always kind of, um, I don't know, I'm kind of outspoken and loud and untraditional in that kind of way. But the things I really love are, you know, history and um, I love genealogy and knowing my ancestors. And, um, you know, my family's been farming basically within this 100-mile radius since the 1630s. And so I think I didn't even know how much I loved it and how much I was a part of this landscape and, you know, at times I think it just takes you to slow down and be a little bit older and more mature maybe to appreciate those kinds of connections um, with the past, which kind of can help pave your future as well. So I think that's – I've always loved it, but I also, unfortunately, and that's part of why I'm so loud about my love of agriculture, is I didn't know that this was a job option. Like I didn't know that – this could be something I could do, um, that you could be a farmer even if you didn't grow up doing 4-H or having, you know, large dairy. Um, It was very inaccessible to me as a kid. So I think that's important for me also is giving, you know, a lot of educational opportunities and crossover opportunities to people who don't live on farms um, because I think that that's going to be the reality of American agriculture is we need to draw other people in who aren't multi-generational farmers to help, you know, share this burden a little bit in the future. Kate, is that uh, is that something easy for, for people in Vermont and in that part of the country to do? Um, say if, if I moved up there and I wanted to get my hands on 15, 20 acres to, to have a, have an operation like yourself, is that, is that something easy for people to do? I mean, 
in a way, I mean, it's easier than maybe it would be in Europe or something like that. But no, I, it's quite expensive. And that's one reason why we don't have a larger operation is because land and taxes are so expensive here. Um, and it's just a very expensive, it's a very, very regulated state. Um, and more government makes something more expensive. So uh, there's not a lot of economic entrepreneurial activities that are easy to enter unless you have deep pockets. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's much easier to do that if you have a million dollar trust fund, uh, but it's very hard for just, you know, the everyday blue collar kid to, to enter this sort mm-hmm. of market. Um, there are programs that, you know, try to encourage that, but it's few and far between. Um, so I would say that, yeah, the land prices and then, you know, getting stuff to market and actually making a, uh, economically sustainable business is very challenging in, in New England in general, but specifically in Vermont. So what, what's the average land price for an acre around there? I don't need no specifics, but what's kind of, if you were to purchase some land over there or an acre even, what, what would it run? Um, I mean, I know in our area, you know, 10 acres of probably not by Texas flatland standards, but by flat-ish <laughs> sort of, you know, no cliffs or anything. I mean, 10 acres can uh-huh. be like $200,000. Um, it can be a lot. Wow. So, I wow. mean, it depends. And there, there are programs, there's a program called the land trust where you know they've already sold the development rights to farms and that's a fairly popular program now uh, you know it's like an older grandparent couple doesn't have anyone to pass their farm on to and they really want to keep it as farmland not have it subdivided or turned into solar farms and they'll sell the development rights so it'll be much more uh you know economically lower priced so that a, a young couple could buy it um, but then you're also, then you're wedded to a lot of stipulations. So mm-hmm. it's nothing's free. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a challenging market and I would say more towards the Northern, uh, side of the state. Sometimes there's some deals you can get. Um, but we're kind of in a, a very developed corner of the, of the state. So where we are is, uh, we are right on the Connecticut river, which is, um, next to New Hampshire and Massachusetts. So we're just kind of in those little corners. Gotcha. So with y'all's farm, you've mentioned we've mentioned before that you're pretty diversified. Excuse me. Uh, tell us a little bit about your farm and, and what y'all what y'all raise and, and what your goal is for the farm overall. Sure. So Meadowdale Farm. Um, so when it started in the late '90s, after my husband got off of active duty, um, he was really uh, focused on having a successful local lumber business. So he would do the logging, milling, um, and turn into timbers, into timber frame buildings and stuff like that. And so then we added the other parts. So now we do meat, eggs, hay, and the forest products. Um, And as far as meat, we do a little bit of everything. (laughs) Basically the the whole meat food group, um, we do uh, pigs, cows, chickens, turkeys, lambs, a uh, little bit of everything. So um, we try to have it so when people want to stock their freezer full of meat, um, we can kind of be a one-stop shop for that. Um, and my goal as we grow is to offer some 
online educational opportunities that can generate a little bit of income that way passively and then um, keep growing our poultry operation as well and on-farm slaughtering. Um, and we're trying to get some regulations changed to make that a little bit more um, farmer-friendly here and keep keep doing, you know, as much meat as we can uh, and, you know, possibly being able to keep our son here um, working on the farm. He's 14 now, so he likes to get paid, and uh, it would be awesome if we were able to make a, a viable part-time job position for him over the next five years. Okay, um, you mentioned it's it's you, your husband, and your son there at the farm. Um, kind yeah. of walk us through your role specifically, but kind of how you all decide who who takes on each role and, and, and does their own jobs on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so, I mean... Most of the the day-to-day chores and um, the paperwork stuff and social media stuff I can do, and uh, my son fills in wherever's needed, and then all the sort of infrastructure projects, all the hanging, um, mechanical stuff, you know, that really lands on the boys to do. Um, But I try to keep up, you know, washing eggs, making the sales. Um, all the wholesale orders and fulfilling stuff for restaurants, I generally do. Um, and we try to have our firm always in a way that it can be run just by myself and my son, um, because we're always kind of on the verge of um, being able to be flexible if a deployment pops up. So that's always something, you know, planning ahead so we have a good sort of backup plan for everything um, and trying to make stuff so. I can do it physically myself. You know, I mean, sometimes that's challenging and there's really heavy stuff you have to move and I'm not a giant person. So that, that can be probably the biggest frustrating limitation, I think, is just um, my physical size and not being able to do as much stuff um, and my terrible uh, backing up skills with a trailer. But I could work on that. Right. So y'all kind of farm in, in a not-so-rural area. I mean, overall, there's there's plenty of people in that state, isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, our home farm. We have eight abutting neighbors. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, it's almost like urban farming in some ways, at least suburban farming. Um, and as sort of our area has been, chopped up and subdivided that's fairly common for farms around here you're dealing with a lot of uh, neighbors and and property lines Mm -hmm. so what what's y'all's biggest challenge uh with farming in that area so our biggest challenge that happened a couple years ago was a zoning issue um and that's been kind of one of the biggest challenges i think for our farm is living in a state with such a rural identity and uh, sort of an exploitative nature with um, getting tourists here because we're a farm, you know, got cows and Ben and Jerry's and all this stuff, you know, but then not having um, state and municipal government really back that up and support farmers. Um, And that was the hardest thing for us um, is to sort of have our local area, not understand that farming isn't just something you'd see in a bucolic painting you know farms make noise farms make smells um, and I think that as we've kind of 
misled the public, you know, because we've tried to advertise and sell an image. We haven't maybe been totally honest with what farming actually looks like. Um, so I think that's one of the, it's not always maybe the best commercial selling point from a marketing standpoint for me to be honest, but I do try to share what farming is like authentically and honestly for me um, mm -hmm. with the public. And, you know, that turns some people off for sure. But I think that that's an important sort of testament, um, even if it's not a good a marketing marketing plan. Because um, there's just not that many people in ag anymore in, in our area. And, you know, you have to define your boundaries and um, – people just you know assume that you have a petting zoo and you're open 24 7 like a grocery store and um mm -hmm. you're having to really reteach people how to interact with with a rural population so you're basically it's kind of like some people just feel like they can just show up at your farm at any point and expect for you to take the time out of your day and, and show them what's going on in, in 11 just to see everything. Is that kind of what you're running into with that? Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard because you want to be an advocate and you want to be open and share everything. And you want to mm -hmm. really t be able to take the time to explain to someone, you know, how eggs are gathered and how you don't need a rooster to have eggs. And, you know, you really want to be able to, <laughs> take each customer aside and do that but that's also really unrealistic um, with the demands of modern farming with social media we're already sharing our story and doing that online and at some mm -hmm. point during the day I have to actually do the real farming part um, mm -hmm. and so that's hard and I, I, I love people's enthusiasm at times but it's also uh, sometimes people just don't understand either you know we're not a grocery store so i don't have bacon in the freezer or on the fridge um 365 it's just we're and that that's sort of a hard thing for people to understand is like in the in the fall months in vermont when the weather gets colder that's when we harvest hogs and that's when we have uh -huh. bacon so if you like bacon buy it then um, but that seasonality aspect is really uh, has been erased, I think, from the American mindset. It's, you know, it's like you saw something on Rachel Ray and you want it now. And, you know, if you're going out of your way to find it locally, you know, you want it. And it's like, it doesn't really happen <laughs> like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, I mean, in some ways, our farm is so small and so diversified. It's a little bit more like visiting a, I don't know, it's almost like a historical, um, you know, blast from the past. And so there is some, uh, you know, navigating and education that we have to do with the public uh, repeatedly. Uh, and that can, you know, it can burn you out a little bit. Okay. You mentioned earlier that there are quite a bit of farms in your area. Um, how do you, when it comes to marketing and, and selling your produce and your, your goods, how do y'all, how do you set yourself apart um, from the guy that's two miles down the road, for example? Sure. So, I mean, part of that is, I think our quality and not taking shortcuts, that's really been important to me. Um, and even if it's not the hippest label or trend, um, I've tried to really pull 
sort of away from that and do things that really make sense to me. And uh, that seems to have really panned out and it's working for us. Um, it does take more time to educate customers why you're doing something some way, but I think when you're able to really clearly explain it and give your reasoning, they know that you've thought about it and you're, you know, you're putting a lot of effort into it. And so I think quality is our biggest um, sort of thing that sets us apart. And then the other thing that helps uh, is we're part of the Farmer Veteran Coalition and we have a homegrown by hero uh, veteran marketing label program that we're part of. And so when people see our product um, at a local market, they're able to quickly identify that they're supporting a veteran owned business uh, with that purchase of their hamburgers or bacon. And uh, I think that that helps set us apart because um, that's not a super common thing um, in our county. And uh, yeah, I, I, and I think, yeah, just telling our story honestly too sets us apart. You, you mentioned the Farmers Veterans Coalition, and, and our listeners even remember back to Tyler Froberg's episode uh, back in the beginning. Um, he is a veteran himself, and he was a part of that, that coalition as well. Kate, why is it important to y'all to, besides using it as a marketing aspect, why is it important to y'all to be a part of that, that organization? Yeah, I think uh, my husband is the president of our Vermont chapter, and um, I've served on the board. And I mean, for us, it's about giving back to the veteran community and making connections. And uh, in our rural state, we don't have a military base or, um, and everybody's really spread out. So, um, you know, when people come back home to rural Vermont after being on active duty, it can be incredibly lonely and isolating. Um, And so having events and getting together and just a support system of the farmer veteran coalition can be incredibly uh, rewarding and just it's been a great way for us to uh, meet like-minded folks who are you know doing similar things and we can find ways to support each other if somebody you know their bailer breaks down we can uh one of us can come to the rescue and that's just a really nice uh you know team building uh, group that we've, we've really enjoyed being a part of um and this past November, we actually were down in Austin at the National Conference for the Farmer Veteran Coalition, and the Texas folks put on a pretty amazing show for us. It was awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Kate, for, for serving on that board and, and uh, giving back to those who have served and, and everything there within our freedom. Uh, I'm going to move on to something that I've been waiting to ask for this whole podcast. Uh, <laughs> I've been looking at your, at your site online and you have a thing called the uh thou shalt not of taking care of sheepskins um tell us a little bit about that uh yeah our 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 farm kid he uh got lambs uh, a number of years ago now i think it was 2015 and he uh he's had a small flock every year and uh we raise them for meat and then he also uh has the hides tanned and then he sells those as sort of a a secondary product um, from them and uh, yeah taking care of a a real sheepskin is a interesting thing I get a lot of questions about that from customers who have bought it so yeah I put that on the website so people know how to take care of them but uh, yeah yeah, it's it's pretty awesome and I I love having sheep What, uh, what kind of sheep are those? 
So they're a mix. We have uh, just a couple miles up the road is a farm, and they are actually a sheep cheese farm. Um, so they just breed them for dairy, and then they're so they're just basically mutts because uh, then they just breed them with a with a breed that is sort of a dual purpose one. So unfortunately, you don't get a lot of meat off of them. It's kind of amazing. When, we basically get back like two small shoe boxes of meat for each lamb. So it's not a very profitable thing. Um, having the hides tanned is definitely, that's an expensive endeavor as well, but um, it at least profits a little bit uh, more than the meat. So that's kind of, it subsidizes the, the meat purchase. Um, you know, definitely having a small scale sheep farm is not very profitable. But it's a good experience, and they're really nice for our customers because they're very friendly, and uh, you're able to have you know kids interact with them, and um, so it's it, and they're great lawnmowers, so I enjoy having them around. <laughs> I could use one of those in my backyard, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, get a couple. I was gonna tell. Yeah, get a couple. I I don't like. Animals, anyway. So it's just a joke. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna tell Wade that there's only one type of sheep, and it's a sheep. But apparently, there's more than one. Uh, there, moving on, I, I think. Uh, well, all I know is I like my steak medium rare, and other than that, I'm not too interested in any other animals. But uh, <laughs> moving on, you, you've mentioned that your husband is uh, or, or was into the forestry business quite a bit. I'm pretty yeah. curious about that because. Uh, if you know anything about the Texas Panhandle, uh, there's no trees, and you can watch your dog run away for three days, and then if you stand on a bean can, you can watch for the next five days. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about that. Okay, yeah, well, Vermont is mostly all forest. Uh, you know, it was pretty much all forest when um, the first settlers got here, and then they cut everything down, and... Um, our timber was super prized. It was actually, you know, some of the tall trees were sent back to England um, for ships masts. And uh, we have, you know, a mixture of different types of hard softwoods. We've got a lot of oak and maple and uh, birch and ash. And um, there's all different trees based on what elevation you're at. Um, up in the mountains, they have a lot more spruce and things like that. Um, than we do down here. I'm kind of in the, the southernmost part, so we have nice warm weather most of the time. Uh, but yeah, so it's very wooded here, uh, very mountainous terrain, a lot of hills. And uh, basically, the just like our farm aspects, the forestry aspects are very seasonal as well. So pretty much in the fall, when it's if it's still kind of dry, and through the winter when the ground is frozen solid and there's snow, um, we'll do all of our logging. And that's a great time because the trees, when you skid them out through the woods, um, they don't have mud on them. Usually the snow you know, cleans them right off, and that's better for the sawmill so you don't go through blades as much. And then um, we truck them to our sawmill, so we've got a small uh, wood miser sawmill and um do a lot of you know boards and for flooring we get them kiln dried and then we have a planer so we can run them through and um yeah then just a lot of custom jobs for for timber framers and then just builders who are looking for really specific you know if they want some kind of maple that has a lot of figure in it for a beautiful 
countertop. Um, they'll seek us out for that. And, um, yeah, and occasionally we'll do jobs also if somebody needs trails cut because they're, I don't know, into mountain biking or skiing or something like that. We'll do jobs as well for that. Um, and then we do a lot of firewood um, with the, the lower quality hardwood logs. And, um, yeah, and, and it's one of those things, too, you know, you don't think of how much forest products are used on diversified farms, but um, we were able to, you know, build all of our buildings and our house uh, with wood that we cut. And then, you know, every day when I put shavings down in the barn, you know, that's kiln dried pine shavings from trees that we cut. And that, you know, reduces costs from buying in shavings from the outside. So, um, and we heat with wood um, with our house. That's not uncommon in Vermont and it heats our hot water as well. So um, we use forest products all the time. Are there are there a lot of regulations on on the trees themselves? Um, I guess I could say there's yes. 100 square feet of, of land you've got. And you think, man, that'd be a great place to put some chicken tractors. Um, can you just go out there, chop those trees down, and expand your your usable farmland? Um, in some ways, you can, but there's certain limits on uh, clear cuts. So if you want to clear a certain amount, um, there's different regulations that come in. There's regulations about you know stream crossings and um, yeah, it's it's become increasingly regulated, and um, there can be challenges. There's been challenges over the years with things like workers' compensation and um, different insurance for the forestry machinery that we use, like skidders and forwarders and harvesters and things like that, are pretty expensive to insure because it's a yeah, you know, it's a fairly dangerous um, OSHA unapproved thing. Um, although. My husband basically most of the time logs primarily. He prefers to log alone. He feels like that's actually safer. Um, and so, you know, we'll sometimes have one employee um, bring logs from wherever he's cutting to the landing. But most of the time he's working in the woods by himself and he likes that um, as opposed to having some other person there put a tree down on him. That's that's pretty interesting to me. I, I was looking at a, a Google Maps there of of your part of the world, and Dan, there's probably more trees in their backyard than in all of Ockletree <laughs> County. <laughs> Not all of Texas, but definitely all of the I, county that Dan lives in. <laughs> I, I'd even go so far to say is there's more trees in y'all's backyard than I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> so uh, I couldn't stand that. I, I like to be able to see for miles, but man, that is an interesting deal. I've never looked into forestry uh, like I probably should, but I, I mean, it's just, it's a total different aspect to farming, really, yeah, if you think about it, it's agriculture as a whole. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the things that are sort of coming out of regenerative agriculture and sort of the permaculture thing with silvopasture and all that stuff, I mean, most, a lot of Vermont farms anyways, do that stuff anyways. You know, we have windbreaks and um, we're not having to often intentionally plant those because we often have them um, or we're, you know, people are running pigs through the woods or grazing their chicken, sheep or goats through the woods. That's not uncommon, but it's just funny that now it's sort of become a little bit more of a hip trendy thing to do. Um, but yeah, we live up to our namesake with Vermont with Green Mountain. Um, we're definitely a, a very wooded green place. And um, and that, you know, is a huge part of our economy is the tourist dollars. And 
that's what brings in, we call them leaf peepers, when all the people from down south come and look at our pretty foliage. Um, and the foliage is really because of our well-managed forest uh, through our maple um, maple sugaring. Um, they're the trees that really change the beautiful colors. Um, so that's a huge part of our, our landscape. Well, that is pretty interesting. Uh, we're going to move on to a little more personal perspective, but uh, Kate, what would you tell your, your 15-year-old self? Um, well, I would definitely tell myself to definitely get an apprenticeship or a job on a working farm and uh, really get some firsthand knowledge um, because so many of our farmers in Vermont, the average age of a farmer is over 55 in Vermont. So, you know, a lot of things, most farmers are much older than that. So a lot of that book knowledge and information that is going to be um, unfortunately going away in the next coming decade, um, I just think is so valuable. And, you know, I've tried to make up for lost time and get hands-on information and help and knowledge from, from folks who have been doing this for, you know, their whole lifetime. Um, but I wish I had gotten started earlier and I wouldn't have let my, um, sort of apprehension about being worried that I didn't, you know, didn't grow up on a farm, so I couldn't be a farmer. I wouldn't have let that hold me back. So, Kate, in, in your in your state, uh, I'm assuming there's there's a lot of uh, left wing um, people. That's the best way I can describe it in in the area. Now, social media is a tool, uh, in my opinion, to be able to share about farms and everything. Do you find a, a lot of uh, oh distrust? in farmers in that area? Yeah, I, I think you're definitely right. I mean, Vermont, we've we've sent Bernie Sanders to the Senate many a year and to the, the national yeah. scene um, the last few years. So, uh, yeah, it, I think it's complicated because it's, it's a very – people – love the romantic ideas of farmers and farmers markets and, you know, barefoot in a strawberry patch, you know, checking on your hemp growing. That's sort of the fantasy of farming. Um, and I've had a fair amount of plant-based vegan um, advocates be, you know, very abusive to me on social media <laughs> when you when you think you get death threats about your child i feel like that sort of crosses the line to abuse it's not just harassment um but it, you know i think the best thing i can do is just keep telling my story loud and proud and while it's not always politically correct i still think it's okay um because my story is of someone who grew up in vermont who's raising a family in Vermont and who loves Vermont more than anything in the world. And just keeping, trying to keep these traditions alive is really the most important thing to me. And um, it may not always get me the most followers on Instagram, um, but that's okay. I still think it's, it's still worthwhile. Well, I just followed you uh, totally. But uh, so social media, uh, I would honestly love to have some fun 
in that area with my social media, but I'd probably lose, I don't know, two or three followers, <laughs> but because most of them know where I stand. But uh, <laughs> tell us, tell us a little about your social media uh, and and what what you like to show on there. So I like to show more of the ugly, real side of farming as I see it. So it's a little bit less of a rosy, shiny, um, look at these beautiful calves and look at my flowers. Um, Here's a red barn. It's a little bit less of that. And I love the accounts that do that. And there are amazing much more skilled in photography and um, they do a great job of sharing that side of, of Ed and I think mine is just a little bit more gritty and mm-hmm. for me it's a little bit more authentic um, there's you know it's rated SC for some cousin but it's sort of I, I want to encourage people into this world of agriculture and this profession and this lifestyle but I also never want to be responsible for misleading anyone into thinking it is really easy and therapeutic and um, relaxing. Um, so it's a little bit more farming unplugged, I think. Mm-hmm. I like that. You use your Instagram uh, to, to show the more uh, realistic side of farming. Do you also use it to, to market um, some of y'all's... I do, uh, I do, which is an interesting combination. I don't know if that's a great marketing plan. Um, and I have taken, <laughs> you know, online marketing, like the free parts of courses, just to see if uh-huh. probably everything I do is not correct um, by marketing people's standards. But, yeah, I, I would say it's it's a lot of farming. It's it's pretty much a day in the life, like an online diary of a middle-aged, haggard woman um, because I share the stuff about, um, you know, if there's long military months away from home and I'm complaining about, you know, having to clean all the time and how much I miss my husband to homeschooling. Um, yeah, I fairly uh, loud mouthed about what I think about the American educational system. And then, um, yeah, a lot about just sort of life homemade. Um, you know, I try to do not in a uh, radical hippie way, but I mean, I try to do as much as I can um, that we make ourselves and um, subsist subsist as much as we can on our own without a lot of inputs whenever possible. Um, I mean, I still go to Target once in a while, don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, just, it sort of shares a little bit about Vermont, which I think is, you know, resilient. We have a pretty distinctive culture and character. um, So that's me. Well, many people know this, but I was home educated as well. And uh, I want to say just just to you and to any other mother that uh, is home educating their kids, I, I, I wish the best of luck to you, and I wish that you would never have a kid like me <laughs> growing up because I think mom had a few gray hairs uh, before she was done with me, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I commend you for being outspoken about it because – it's right. Uh, moving back to a little bit of the social media side, it's really easy to just show your best crops and your, your best shiniest piece of machinery and, and all the, the fun stuff about agriculture. But kind of like you've said, I mean, we've set a, we've set a standard about farming uh, intentionally or not. 
uh, that it's it's pretty glamorous and people see it that way and uh, they don't realize that commodities right now are <laughs> uh, so low that you can't even break even at some point and it's just it's hard to uh, move back to man we're struggling and so I, I commend yeah. you for sharing that part because I don't know if I I could be so open about it. Yeah, and I think it's also the flip side is people think, oh, how nice it'd be to, you know, make a ton of money on Wall Street and then retire on their sanctuary farm. But then on the flip side, when it comes to policy and, um, you know, just anything basically in, in government or anything like that, farmers have such a – the other side of it as, with the prejudice that of, you know, not being educated or uh, I heard a senator on the – the floor one day a couple years ago in our state house talk about dirty loggers and you know such derogatory disdain and hate and um you know just this idea that we're very backwards people and mm-hmm. it's a strange dichotomy to have and i think that that's one thing that's also really important is we have to have a seat at the table we cannot surrender this anymore to you know just well-educated people in suits. Um, and that was, that's been very hard for me. Um, even just simple things. Uh, you know, when I first started testifying at the state house, I was so scared. And also we, you know, had made about $10,000 that year and I didn't have anything to wear that was professional. I didn't have any right shoes, nothing to wear that looked right. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you do your best and, you know, you go as clean as you can and, you know, wear your nicest car hearts. But um, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it does not matter if you don't use the right words. We just have to go and go to those, um, you know, we have sort of open farm days um, that different advocacy groups put on and you just got to go to them. And even if you're not polished and well-spoken, it doesn't matter. You've just got to be there to tell your story because, it's fundamentally important um, because otherwise you just have, you know, these people who are educated beyond their intelligence uh, making rules mm-hmm. for us, and they don't make any sense. Yeah. So, uh, have you ever heard of a guy named? I think his name was Mike Blumberg or something like that. I think he was running yes. for county commissioner I, or something a while back. I think so. I think so. Yeah, he, he's kind of outspoken about agriculturists, <laughs> uh, and I was kind of curious. You know, you've brought up uh, the the political side to uh, politicians just saying, "Oh, farmers just you know they just put a seed in the ground and and cover it up with dirt, and hey, they make money." Uh, <laughs> I'm sure in your area, uh, with with the demographics there of people who who more on the left side than the right side. Uh, uh, you're getting attacked or maybe not so much attacked as in uh, perhaps oh what's the word hold on what's a good word Wade what am I trying to say Wade can Wade smart I mean I know there I know there are people who won't do business with me based upon who I voted for for president so I mean I guess I mean attacked but persecuted or you know or or being Christian, that's not really a very fondly looked upon thing here either. Um, right. Here goes Dan Rand. So, yeah, oh, no, I feel that's it coming. 
while I'm about to go off way, but I think the best thing to do is, is just let our, our guest uh, handle that. Kate, your, your, your website, it says literally faith, family, and farming. You see that a lot in, in farms and agriculture as a whole, really. Um, you little, you kind of touched on your faith and, and perhaps the uh, different decisions that consumers might have on whether or not they want to purchase your uh, stuff or, or go to someone else. Do you see that a lot or is that just something that's kind of rare? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely increased. I've only really been this publicly outspoken, I think, for the last four or five years. I've really gotten on a roll by soapbox over those those years. Um, and it's it's taken me, you know, I'm 37 years old. It's taken me this long to be able to publicly come out in my community as Christian um, and that's been something that has been a really big struggle for me that I think in other parts of the country, people have zero idea what I'm talking about. So sometimes my rants on social media are probably not always completely understood unless you live maybe in areas where there are a lot of coastal elites. Um, so I, I hear people in California often sympathize with me greatly. They know just what I'm talking about. Um, and so, yeah, when I did the website a couple of years ago, I did it through Squarespace, um, did it myself. And that was a, a bold move for me that I was pretty nervous about was to sort of declare my faith. Um, I think generally growing up here, if anybody ever said, like, I'll pray for you or, you know, God bless you or something, you were thought of as less intelligent and, um, you know, a little bit like you believed in Santa Claus or something like that. Um, there's not a lot of active churches in my area. I have heard, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I have heard that we have so few um, churches and, you know, practicing Christians that we would actually qualify to have a mission, like a mission church outreach program in our, in our county. Wow. Um, so I think, yeah, so that's always my, I know that my story is very different than a lot of other um, farmers' experiences in other parts of the country. And that is so amazing that people have a, a family and a community around them that's like-minded. Um, it's been a little bit more of a solo journey for me. So sometimes that's probably, you know, if you see me off on a tear on my Instagram stories that that's, you know, some backstory with it. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been really important for me to be able to come out and be honest about those things and, um, and really, uh, evolve as a Christian and be comfortable with that. And, um, yeah, it's, that's been part of my journey for sure. And it is, it's pretty awesome that a lot of the agricultural community is, um, very supportive of that and has been um, very inspiring for a lot of that. Amen. Wow. Uh, amen. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Wow. I can't imagine. You know, I grew up in the Bible Belt. That's literally what we're called. And if, if someone doesn't go to church, we're always calling each other and say, hey, are you okay? And so I just can't imagine that side of it. And to think that that's in the same nation, like we're literally in the same 
country, and it's just so diverse. It blows my mind. It really does. Of course, it doesn't take so much to do different. that either. <laughs> it's so different. Yeah, that was actually one of the things when I, when we went to Austin. Um, and I know Austin is sort of one of the more liberal places in Texas, but for me, coming from southern Vermont, it was incredible uh, people at this giant conference before we ate one time, you know, they said, I mean, it was a very general prayer. I mean, it would work for a lot of different faiths, um, but it was a real, you know, a pause giving thanks for the farmers who grew the food and for everyone being together. And it was just, it was like, I could just exhale a little bit deeper um, knowing that I was with people that intentionally would take a pause to give thanks for all of, you know, the blessings that they had. And, um, so I really appreciated that. I like it. Uh, wow. I hate to move on, but we're almost kind of running out of time, Wade. Dan, you always, uh, you always make, you like me the, to... make me the bad guy. I feel like, you know, we have these great I do. conversations I like about Jesus that. and then wait, it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better for, for the public opinion on my side. So, Okay, why don't you make me the bad guy? <clears throat> Wade, you want to move on now and stop talking about Jesus or what? Wow. That's, Is that better? We will, we will never stop talking about Jesus. But we do have some more questions we want Kate to answer. Amen. About that. <laughs> uh, Kate, we're going like to move into our – We're going to move into our rapid-fire questions. Um, Dan and I put these together. Right. We're going to have some fun. Um, now, the first question I'm going to ask, it, it may just mess everything up. Are you a Red Sox fan being two hours from Boston? Uh, no, actually we're not. Oh, well, scratch that question. Um, Dan, Which, I know, I know, it's <laughs> Aren't the Red Sox like a, a ice hockey team or something? Yes. I think so. That's I exactly, think so. That's exactly what they are. Um, go ahead, Dan. I knew Next it. Question. See, I know so much. Okay, go ahead. All right. So, uh, I'm going to, this is one of my most favorite questions so far, but tell us about the scariest moment you've ever had on the farm. Uh, okay, my son was about two and a half years old, and uh, we looked away for a minute. We were unloading um, a tractor, and the tailgate of the whole thing uh, fell down on him. And luckily, he was like rubber, and it was springtime, and the soil's really muddy here. And so there must have just been like enough give that it didn't crush him. Um, that was probably one of the most scary things. I think ever that has ever happened. Well, yeah, I understand that for sure. Uh, Kate, what is your current, uh, if you're, if you're just looking to like jam out to some music, um, what's your, what's your current go-to song or your, your artist of choice right now? Well, it's gotten a little weird during the quarantine times. Like I've gone back to, the 90s i've gone back to the 1960s but generally uh, generally i listen to a lot of bluegrass and country older country not bro country um and so bluegrass right now i love paul ramblin boys and um yeah just just a bunch of kind of regional small bluegrass artists so dan it's pretty what, eclectic here dan what are you rocking out to in the tractor uh Honestly, it's mostly podcasts, but, uh, and I won't name who's I listen to because then we'll be promoting them without being paid. <clears throat> but <laughs> I, I like Coulter Wall. He, he's a, 
he's kind of an old style kind of singer, but he's still uh, current. And one of his best songs is literally called Motorcycle. And you, you can just jam out to it 100% of the time and not even worry about it. What about you, Wade? I'm on a, I'm on a bit of a Flatland Cavalry kick right now. Um, mm-hmm. Kate, that's a that's kind of a regional band from down here. We call it the Texas country genre, uh, but that's it's kind of my go-to right now. Nice. Right on. All right, this is another favorite question of mine that I came up with today, believe it or not. Um, this is extremely important because it tells me whether or not I'm going to continue uh, liking you as, as, a, as a farmer. But if, if you have a choice, peanut butter and jelly sandwich or ham and cheese sandwich? This is very important. Oh, well, I am from Vermont, and I raise pigs, so I am going to say ham and cheese. But that yeah. also influenced because last night I had a giant big ham that I baked, and I had some ham and cheese today, and it was absolutely phenomenal. That does sound phenomenal. I love it. Well, I, I'm going to continue being your friend now, so you're all right. <laughs> and and, and up, up here in the Northeast, too, we would have a flubber nutter. Do you know what this is? It's like marshmallow fluff. You're about to blow Dan's nutter. mind. And a fluffer nutter? Marshmallow, yes. It, it's this marshmallow goo stuff. It comes in a big white plastic container. And then you use like a creamy peanut butter. And you also have to have this on white bread. Like the crappier bread, the better. So you got to have like Wonder Bread or something lightly toasted. <laughs> and then... That's like what we grew up on as like a treat. So actually, when we visited Texas, the kids we stayed at had didn't know what I was talking about, and uh, I mailed them a bunch of fluff down to Temple, Texas. So it's called a fluffer nutter. Fluffer nutter, yeah. I think it's a wow. Yeah, it's a New England weird thing. The other weird regional thing we have is coffee syrup. You guys have that, do you? Whoa, it's whoa, like, whoa, whoa. Chocolate coffee, milk, syrup. Yeah. I'm going to have to send you guys Okay, I'm going to have to get some. Basket. I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am all things about coffee, so I am very interested in this. What is it again? So it's it's a sweetened coffee syrup, and most of them are a corn syrup, um, you know, coffee flavoring. But I think it comes from mostly the Rhode Island, Boston area. That's the big coffee syrup hmm. land. And, uh, yeah, you put it in milk, like a cold, cold glass of milk. Hmm. It's really good. Yeah. I could, Interesting. I could go with that. I'd put some on some pancakes. Well, that could, I don't know. That would make well, we would have, You'd have to have maple syrup if I was making pancakes. You'd have to have 100% fancy maple syrup. Well, that is true. You're in the, in the maple syrup era, area, aren't you? Yeah. I feel no, like I've kind of gone off on a rabbit trail we here. We just turned into Wait, a food so. podcast, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about food because I am hungry. But food, let's food move and on. Food and Jesus. Food and Jesus. Hey, we're, that is all, all I'm about. Really Amen. That's, that's all farming is. Okay, as we get ready to close this deal out, uh, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you on social media? Sure. So I'm on Instagram at Meadowdale Farm. I also have a website, meadowdalefarm.com, and I'm also on Facebook. Folks, those links will be down in the show notes. Uh, be sure you check check her social medias out. 
Um, it's a great follow. Lots of good information. Dan, close it out for us. All right. Kate, I want to thank you for being on our show. Uh, I have learned a lot, and I've also really enjoyed it. I mean, I really have. This has been a great show. Uh, I've kind of already dove into the into the politics side of, of where you live and everything, and I'd love for you to touch on that a little more. But uh, if you could send off this podcast with, with, with your final thoughts about just whatever you want to speak about, would, would you mind uh, sharing it with us? Sure. Um, well, I think the, the good news is that there's a lot of enthusiasm, and I think with the current um, pandemic stuff, our food system might have some opportunities um, that it wouldn't have had before. Um, and I hope that we can use those to benefit agriculture and our communities. Um, but I also think rules are not being kind of dismantled. And um, at this current state, I think we're unable to adapt to a volatile marketplace. Um, and I think it's really, really, really important that farmers stand up and stand together and are a little bit less um, petty about types of farmers they are and not segregate themselves mm. into their little tiny groups and cliques and um, yep. really come together for the greater good. I think that that's really vital at this time. And um, I think we can be a lot stronger if we stand together. Right on, right on. Well, hey, Kate, like I said before, I want to thank you for being on our show. Uh, I feel as though coffee syrup is now going to become a thing for me. <laughs> and uh, I'm very excited to, to try to find some online and get it because I'm excited about it. Uh, Wade, you want to finish it off? Kate, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it a lot. Dan, we'll visit with you next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Advocates. Be sure and check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages to see who we'll feature next. On behalf of Dan, I'm Wade. We'll see you next time. <laughs>